Please open your Bibles to Matthew 23. Again, that's Matthew chapter 23. Our passage for today, for the sixth and final week in a row, is Matthew 23, 13 to 15. Uh, and let's begin by reading the passage together. Of course, Jesus is standing in the temple on Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday uh, before his crucifixion. He has just defeated this coalition of religious leaders who had gathered in the temple to challenge his authority in a, in a religious debate now. In Matthew 23, he responds to that challenge by publicly castigating the scribes and the Pharisees for the hypocrisy and their leadership. And he begins here in verses 13 to 15, where he describes the effect of, the result of their hypocrisy, saying this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In the county of Yorkshire, England, uh, towards the southern end of Yorkshire Dales National Park, there flows a narrow wooded stream that's known simply as the Strid. The Strid. It's a rather innocent-looking stream. It's no more than maybe about six feet across at its narrowest point and apparently just a few feet deep. It's the kind of stream that if you were to come across it suddenly during a, a leisurely stroll in the woods or something like that, you wouldn't think twice to try to jump across it. Or maybe if you didn't think you could jump that far, you try to hop across on a couple of the rocks that stick up out of the surface. Who knows, you might even determine to try to just wade your way across. That actually seems to be where the name strid comes from, uh, from the word stride. After all, that's the kind of bland, innocuous stream this is. It's the kind that when you come across it, you wouldn't think twice to try to stride across it or even uh, try to leap over it from one side to the other. But suppose you did try to stride over this stream, or suppose you tried to hop on the rocks there in the water, and your foot slipped. Or suppose that you simply decided to wade your way across. Suppose that you made any decision that would lead you to try to stand in that stream, either intentionally or unintentionally, whatever the case may be. If you did that, that would be the last decision you'd ever make. Because you see, the Strid is not the harmless forest stream that it appears to be, and the rocky ground all along the stream's edge, it's hiding a secret. Just a few hundred yards upstream, the water that flows into the Strid is actually known as the River, River Wharf. And it's a gentle flowing stream that's about 30 feet wide and several feet deep. In reality, the Strid is not a shallow forest stream, but a narrow channel of rock. How deep? No one knows for certain. However, as the river wharf passes through the strid, it's essentially turned on its side as it's turned into a strong, fast-moving current. The water apparently even cuts into the rocks under the edge of the strid where it appears to form a network of underwater caves and tunnels. The result is that this rather innocuous-looking stream is actually believed to be the most dangerous stretch of water in the entire world. Literally, hundreds of lives are believed to have been claimed by the strid over the centuries. In fact, the Strid is so dangerous that according to locals, no one who has ever stepped foot into the Strid has ever been seen again, dead or alive. And in a sense, that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with when we deal with false religion. 
In the passage that we read just a moment ago, Jesus is describing the effect of the scribes and the Pharisees' false teaching, the effect of their hypocritical self-righteousness. And in effect, what he says is that they not only managed to shut the people out of the kingdom with their false teaching, but they actually made their second state worse than the first. This seems to be the point behind this statement that they actually make their proselytes twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Jesus isn't necessarily saying that the proselyte is a more extreme version of the hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisee. Uh, What he's saying is that they are in a worse state spiritually than even the scribes and the Pharisees. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees know enough to know that what they're saying is a lie. The crowds that they teach, they aren't afforded that privilege. So when the scribes and the Pharisees lie about Jesus... They know it's a lie. They can see the error. The crowds who trust in their spiritual authority, however, they don't share that perspective. They reject Jesus because they believe He's a false teacher, because the scribes and the Pharisees tell him, tell them He is. When Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for their interpretation of the Scripture, for their application of righteousness, they know enough to know that Jesus has a point. They can see that He's right. But when they turn around and tell the crowds, you know, he's a liar, don't listen, listen to what he has to say, the crowds are practically defenseless. I mean, when the shepherds turn on the sheep and devour them, who's there to rescue them, right? That's the state with the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds. So they shut the people out of the kingdom. They slam the door in their faces just as they're about to enter in. They snatch up the gospel seed just as it's sowed so it can't take root. But then as if that's not enough, not only do they do this, but they, but they then smear this thin varnish of false religion over the proselyte just enough to make them think that they've entered into the kingdom, but at the same time just enough error to keep them out. So that the proselyte is effectively sealed in their unbelief through the false hope of their false religion. This is the danger of false religion. It gives a kind of false hope that makes a person stop looking for salvation. And again, whereas the hypocritical teacher, the the teacher who spreads his false religion in order to receive praise from men, whereas he's in a position to recognize that lie and repent, the proselyte is not. This means that there is almost more hope for the repentance of the scribes and the Pharisees than there is for the people they teach. This is what Jesus means when he says that they make their disciples twice as much a child of hell as themselves. The threat posed by false gospels are very much like the threat posed by the, by the strid. They look rather innocent, rather harmless on the surface, but there's a danger leaking underneath that the unwitting passerby couldn't possibly fathom. And so if they manage to make this, the mistake of stepping into one of those streams, one of these false gospels, if they fall for the illusion and sink their foot down into that teaching, then there's a near 100% chance that they'll be swept away in a tumult of deceit, never to be seen again. And so what do you do in this sort of situation? You warn. You warn. You tell people about the danger and you urge them to stay away. You go to the street today and there are signs posted all around with big letters that say, Danger, this pool is very dangerous. Submerged rocks, diving, jumping, and swimming, prohibited. And these signs are posted in an effort to keep people away so they never make the fatal mistake of stepping foot in that stream. And that's essentially what we've been doing over the past several weeks in this series as well. We've responded to this warning from Jesus about the spiritually fatal effect of false religion by exploring the false gospels that are prominent in our area. And they are prominent in our area. 
False gospels are always going to be prominent where the true gospel flourishes. And so we've responded to this warning from Jesus by exploring the false gospels that are prominent in our area. And we've done this first and foremost so we can ask ourselves, in what gospel have I believed? I mean, we're all just as susceptible to fall prey to to a false gospel as anyone else. In fact, I'd even venture to say that if you've believed in the true gospel, it's still possible for one of these false gospels to affect your thinking as it relates to your sanctification or perhaps even your proclamation of the gospel. So we're asking ourselves, what are the false gospels that surround us? And how are they distinct from the gospel that Christ preached? And we're doing this in order to ask ourselves, have I been affected by one of these false gospels? Is it even possible Is it even possible that I've been utterly swept away by error and am and, and still in need of repentance? Up to this point in this series, we've studied six goal-oriented false gospels and two means-oriented false gospels. A goal-oriented false gospel, of course, is a false gospel that tries to set your hope on something other than what Jesus was promising. It, it tries to sell you the wrong product, so to speak, whereas a means-oriented false gospel tries to sell you the right product, but at the wrong price. It tries to get you to make a commitment that Jesus didn't demand to try to access the hope that He offers through a means other than what He established. The goal-oriented false gospels are the prosperity gospel, the soft prosperity gospel, the family values gospel, the therapeutic gospel, the experience gospel, and the socio-political gospel. And of course, we've seen that the thing that all these false gospels share in common is that they take a very real hope or promise associated with the gospel. They take some gift that Jesus offers and then they elevate it to a place of supreme importance. In other words, it's not as if these false gospels are entirely false. No, they're actually taking a very real promise made in the gospel, whether it be the hope of a physical or spiritual or societal restoration, but then they make that thing the point of the gospel rather than the effect of the gospel. Throughout this series, I've explained that the point of the gospel ultimately is a restored relationship with God. The point is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him. He is the prize of the gospel. And then all these other things that are included in that promise are but the effect of that prize. The physical order will be restored as we re-enter into fellowship with God. And the effects of the curse will be lifted and God will bless us in response. As we are restored to fellowship with God, we are restored spiritually so that we are capable of delighting in God. And as we delight in God, we will live lives that are conformed to His will and we will experience the blessing that comes with this righteousness. Further, as sin is judged and as the world is filled with people that love God in this way, it will ultimately lead to a completely restored social and political order at the return of Christ. Culture itself is going to be transformed by the worship of God's people. And of course, we're going to experience all the blessings of a society that's filled with righteousness and peace as well. These are all things that Christians will experience as they're restored in fellowship with God, but they are not in and of of themselves the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the Gospel is the relationship that produces these other things. The goal-oriented false gospel gets this out of order. Essentially, they exchange the giver for the gift. Whereas the gift is ultimately designed to point back to the superior greatness of the giver, goal-oriented gospels flip that order around and they view the giver merely as a means to the gift. 
God is not the goal of the gospel, they say. He's merely the instrument that achieves that goal. What He gives us ultimately is something other than Himself. And this we've seen is not the gospel. It is not the good news. To receive anything less than God Himself is not good news. Last week we looked at two closely related means-oriented gospels. These are the works and the grace plus works gospels. Just as their names sound, the works gospel proclaims that we're capable of attaining a relationship with God simply on the basis of our own good works. We're good people, that's why we'll go to heaven. The grace plus works gospel, on the other hand, says that we need Jesus, we need grace, but we access that grace grace through some kind of human effort. There's something we must do to achieve salvation, even if that action doesn't have any intrinsic value in and of itself. Of course, I noted that it's hard to even include the works-based gospel in our list of false gospels because it's actually so far afield from Christianity that it's hard to even attach the gospel label to it. The idea is that you don't really need Christ at all. Maybe He helps, but you don't really need Him at all. All you have to do is just be good. And if you're good enough, God will accept you. So salvation, if you even want to call it that, is possible, but it isn't given. It's earned. There's really no gospel in that. There's no good news in that kind of a message. It's just quid pro quo. You do this for God, and He'll do this for you in return. You go to heaven because you deserve it. That's justice. That's all that is. And since it makes Christ superfluous, it's decidedly unchristian, non-Christian. The grace plus works gospel is different. Grace is still needed according to this gospel. Salvation is not, properly speaking, earned, at least not in the way that the works-based gospel sees it. Salvation is still unmerited according to this gospel. It's still a gift. But the catch is that you have to go through the right steps to receive this gift. In other words, salvation is not purely on the basis of faith. It's on the basis of a faith that is exercised through the means of God's grace. Whether that be baptism or the Lord's table or confession or charity. The idea is that the means of grace is what actually saves And faith is just the vehicle that takes you there. It's the thing that gets you to the point where you exercise the appropriate means of salvation. That seems relatively harmless. I think many Christians might wonder what the big deal about that is. After all, salvation is still by grace. It's unmerited, technically speaking. So what's the big deal in saying that God is determined to dispense that grace through specific tangible channels of distribution? And we saw that the big deal is that Paul explicitly condemns this type of gospel as, quote, a different gospel in the book of Galatians. He even goes so far as to say that the ones who pursue this gospel actually sever themselves from Christ. It would seem that in Paul's eyes, to add any requirement whatsoever to salvation, even if it was just to merely communicate the distribution of grace through some external means, this is to deny the finished work of Christ on the cross, and the very concept of justification by grace through faith. For Paul, the whole point of the Gospel is that we receive salvation purely by God's grace, entirely through faith. It's utterly free. This It, it can't really be earned. That we're at, According to Paul, we're actually even incapable of contributing to our salvation in any way. And so to add any work whatsoever to that process, even if it's only to say this is the means of receiving God's saving grace, he would say that's actually to deny the gospel entirely. It's to turn away from Christ completely. 
And of course, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. So his thoughts on this matter reflect God's thoughts. This is how God says that salvation works. So, in salvation, grace is really kind of a... It's it's an all-or-nothing thing. There's really no in-between. You can either trust entirely in the finished work of Christ alone for your salvation without any attempts to contribute to that salvation in any way, or you can fend for yourself. You can go and try to earn your salvation apart from Christ. This seems to be Paul's point in Galatians 3, 10-12, when he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The idea is that if you commit yourself to justification through obedience in any way, then Paul says you have to go the whole nine yards. You're wholly committed to that way of justification because it is diametrically opposed to the concept of faith. So you have to pick. Salvation is either works-based or it's grace-based. There is no in-between. You have to choose your course. And of course, as Paul points out, there's really no dilemma between these two options. For Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was wasn't designed to give life. If anything, Paul says, it was designed to take it, to kill. This is actually what Paul says about the Mosaic Law in 2 Corinthians 3. 3. Referring to the law, he says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he goes so far as to call the Mosaic Law the ministry of death. The law isn't there to give life. It's there to reveal sin and in revealing sin to increase condemnation. Romans 5, 20-21 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the law doesn't save. All it does is, is remove, remove our excuse. We're... we're we would try to say to God, but God, I didn't realize. The law takes that excuse away. So there's really no contest here. A person must choose. There is no middle ground. If they choose to go the route of obedience to law for salvation in any measure, then they have to go all the way and seek to justify themselves by their own righteousness. This is completely impossible. And so the only option is the alternative which is to seek justification by grace through faith alone. And this is where we ended up last week. We said that salvation is and only can be utterly free. It's not earned in any way. It's just given. God gives eternal life when we believe Christ's righteousness alone is the only currency that He's going to accept in the kingdom of heaven. Every other human effort is not transferable. Of course, I pointed out that this doesn't mean that God does not still respond to our actions as Christians, bestowing blessing when we come to Him in faith and alternatively uh, disciplining us when we don't. But the relationship that we have with Him, the love that He has for us, this is not founded upon our actions in any way. It's given simply by grace. Now, at the conclusion of last week's message, I pointed out that this raises a question. I said that God does not love us as Christians any more when we obey 
than when we disobey. He loves us the same either way, even though He may be grieved by our sin and delight in our obedience. And this can raise the question, so does this mean that we can just go and sin and live however we want, and it won't matter? Because either way, we're covered by the blood of Christ and forgiven for our sin. I mean, I know that Paul talks about ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, but, but, but you're talking about diplomatic immunity, aren't you? So I can just go and live it up and act how I wish because in the end it doesn't matter. Is that what you're saying, Ryan? And obviously I might push back on this uh, with this idea of you know, we're loved, but, but, but still God can, can still be disappointed. The idea that God can love us and still reject our sin and that He can even discipline us as children in love. And I could say that we shouldn't go and live however we want because of that, but that doesn't really answer the question, does it? The question isn't really about whether or not we should go and engage in a life of wanton sin. The question is whether we can. Yes, God may discipline bad behavior, but bottom line is bad behavior allowed? Can we just live however we want and yet still be assured of our salvation based on this idea that salvation is by grace through faith alone? And to answer that question, I turn your attention to the last false gospel in our series, which is the decisionistic gospel or the cheap grace gospel. This is the gospel that's often cast under the category of easy believism. You know, this gospel is so prevalent in our sphere of Christianity that I think it almost goes without explaining. Altar calls, sinner's prayers, decision cards, spiritual birthdays. I mean, this is the stuff of Baptist churches. It's all around us. Even if you didn't grow up in a Baptist church, I'm sure that you come in contact with this false gospel at some point in your life, so it almost goes without saying. But, but what this gospel proclaims is essentially if you just give some sort of mental assent to the fact that Jesus is God's Son, that He died for your sins, and if you then go through the process of asking Him for forgiveness of sins, then you're saved. It doesn't matter really what happens in your life after that. You could walk away from the church, live in a life of want and sin. doesn't matter. So long as you ask Jesus into your heart at some point in your life, you're golden. You're in. That decision card that you signed, that's your membership card to the kingdom of heaven. It's a testament to the fact that no matter what else happens in your life, you're forever a child of God from that point on. Again, this is just an incredibly prevalent expression of the gospel. In fact, this is the false gospel that I fell prey to before God miraculously opened my eyes to the gospel. I was going to a Baptist church in Wisconsin when I finally understood what the pastor was saying when he was describing our position as sinners before God and... Uh, how Jesus made a remedy for that condition through His death on the cross. I was in third grade at the time, and I can still remember feeling a terrible sense of fear as I sat there in the pew week after week considering the awful reality of hell, knowing and believing that I was worthy of it. They did altar calls at that church, and I can recall over the course of several messages feeling the pressure to walk forward and make that commitment to Jesus. But I hesitated. And to be clear, it wasn't because of some reluctance to repent of my sin or something like that, because they didn't really preach that. Repentance wasn't part of their explanation of the gospel. In fact, if anything, they really hammered home the idea that salvation was completely and utterly free, that you didn't have to do anything to receive it, but essentially cast your vote for Jesus. 
The only reason why I hesitated was just because I was afraid of everyone seeing me walk forward. I didn't want people to know that I hadn't yet made my commitment. Understand, this was a Baptist church in Wisconsin, a fairly legalistic one at that, and I was already in third grade. Now, I can't necessarily speak for other Baptist churches, but in this one, eight or nine years old was practically ancient as far as conversions go. One would think that I had lived a, a, an entire life of blatant, hard-hearted rejection to God to only make a commitment to God after nearly a decade of life on this earth. But I had only started going to this church maybe six months earlier. We just moved to Wisconsin, started attending this church. I just hadn't really heard or understood the gospel up to that point, so what was I to do, right? So I was embarrassed more than anything else, and I didn't want my friends to see me go up there and then ask me all these questions afterwards, act surprised and everything like that, and so I hesitated. But I really wanted to go up. And I wanted to go up because I understood that that was the only way I could be saved. I needed to go up there, confess my sins, ask Jesus into my heart. If I did it, then I believed I could be forgiven. So finally, one Wednesday night it happened. It was Awana. And the pastor had just delivered another gospel message, as he often did. And he did the whole every head bowed, every eye closed thing, you know, and he continued to needle the conscience of every child in the room as he waited and waited for someone to come forward. I again felt the conviction of not committing my life to Christ. And finally, I determined that tonight would be the night I was going to walk forward and commit my life to Christ. So I did. I walked forward and knelt in front of the preacher with a couple of other kids, if I remember correctly, and with the rest of the children still behind me with their heads bowed, and a wanna leader led me in the sinner's prayer. After the service, the pastor stayed behind, and with a gospel tract in hand, he rehearsed the gospel with me in a pew in the back of the sanctuary. With tears in my eyes, I continued to confess my desire to be forgiven of my sin, and so we prayed again. And then he put a date on the tract, and he told me that I had been forgiven of my sin. And from that day forward, I no longer had to fear God's judgment. I was a Christian, and I was going to heaven. I have to say, probably the one thing I still remember the most about that evening was how palpable it all felt. It literally felt as if this gigantic weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt physically lighter, and I couldn't stop smiling. So happy I was that my sin had been forgiven. Unfortunately, it would be several years later before I would eventually realize that I was not actually a Christian. You see, what this gospel gets wrong is that while, while emphasizing the freeness of grace, it fails to take into account several statements by Jesus where it's apparent that belief is more than just a mental assent to the historical facts of the gospel combined with a mere desire to not go to hell. Jesus makes statements like this, for instance. Matthew 10, 32-33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Clearly, there's a kind of social ostracization that can occur for Christ's disciples. And Jesus says that whoever is not willing to endure that is not worthy to be one of his disciples. He goes on to say in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, that, quote, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, there's apparently some kind of surrender that occurs when a person follows Jesus. They are, in some sense, giving up this life so that they can gain another one. 
In fact, in another context, Jesus says that the one who does not renounce all that he has, or more literally, all of his possessions, cannot be his disciple. We're not talking about worthiness here even. We're talking about discipleship. The one who does not do this, he says they're not just unworthy. Jesus is saying they're not a disciple. Point is, there's obviously a clear cost to following Jesus. Salvation is somehow both free, according to Paul, in places like Romans 6.23, I have to say that was one of the verses that I memorized in Awana, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is clearly free and unearned, according to Paul. But according to Jesus, it's also very costly. It's so costly, actually, that so far from trying to rush any potential convert with the slightest inkling of interest in the gospel through some kind of formulaic prefabricated prayer and then instantly dunking them in the first pool of water they could find, Jesus actually encourages his disciples to slow down and to really count the cost before they decide to follow him. For example, as Jesus describes the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? He says, slow down. Know what I'm asking you and count the cost before you throw in with me. Make sure that you're ready to finish this commitment before you start it. Because it's costly. And if you can't finish it, then it's all going to have been in vain. Believe it or not, Jesus even turns potential disciples down on more than one occasion. In Matthew 8, for example, he turns down a scribe and then then another man right after that when they try to follow him without sufficiently counting the cost. He does the same thing in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. He doesn't just take this man at the first expression of his desire for eternal life. He tells him, okay, leave everything you have, leave it all behind, and follow me. Give everything to me. And that man doesn't do it. He walks away. And understand that that when this man came up to Jesus, he came asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy says, I want to have eternal life. What do I have to do to get it? Jesus says, leave everything and follow me, and the man can't do it. And the implication is that he did not receive eternal life. That was required. Again and again, Jesus makes this very evident. While salvation is free, there's some measure of obedience that follows without which no one will be saved. In Matthew 7, he says that many will cry out to him, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment. In other words, there's going to be a profession of faith that's made by some on the day of judgment. Only for Jesus to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Likewise, Hebrews 12.14 speaks of a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is all stuff that I was never exposed to when I was in third grade. I was never told that my life was supposed to change after I knew Jesus. Or if I was told that, it certainly wasn't emphasized to the point where I understood the kind of commitment that was I was making when I chose to follow Jesus. I was never told to count the cost, never told to slow down and make sure I was really ready to commit myself to Christ. 
instead at the very first opportunity, at the very first signs of interest in Jesus, I was simply told to pray a prayer and to never question my salvation after that. There was no discussion of repentance, no discussion of actual submission to Christ of obedience. No, it was only much later. It was only when I was in college as I actually read my Bible and came across passages like the ones I just read to you that there were these types of I saw that there were these types of things that Jesus demanded and I realized that I never expressed that kind of faith in Jesus not once in my life. And it was only as I wrestled over the meaning of those statements essentially on my own that I finally came to realize that I was not a Christian. That I had not actually expressed the kind of faith that Jesus demanded. The term cheap grace was coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, quote, this is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner, who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. He continues, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. On the other hand, costly grace, Bonhoeffer says, is the treasure treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. He explains, such grace is costly because it causes us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Now I have to tell you, I don't personally like the term cheap grace too much because it implies that grace is something other than free. And Paul makes it incredibly clear that grace is actually absolutely free. It is cheap in this sense. There's nothing that you have to do to buy it. But you can see Bonhoeffer's point, can't you? He looks at these demands that Jesus makes and he understands, as Jesus did, that this salvation that Jesus offers, yes, it is free, but it's going to cost you. Now, it's not going to cost you anything to acquire it. And I think Bonhoeffer's wording may be a little unclear at this point, but we need to make this clear. Jesus never implied that it cost anything to acquire the salvation He offers. But its consequences, its consequences, and most especially in this fallen world where people reject God and where we struggle against our sinful flesh, the consequences of this faith are going to cost you dearly. This is why Jesus talks about finishing the tower and winning the battle. It's not hard to start building the tower per se. It's not hard to declare war on an enemy. But finishing the tower or winning the battle, that takes stamina and endurance. In other words, it's in a sense very easy to enter the kingdom. 
There's very little cost to entering the kingdom of heaven. But as you enter into this kingdom and endure, the price becomes very, very costly, even increasingly costly. This is why Jesus urges any potential disciple to pause and weigh the seriousness of their commitment before they follow him. While it doesn't cost you anything to receive salvation, the journey that follows after you follow Jesus, that's going to cost you everything. Grace is not cheap in this sense. It's very, very costly. What the decisionistic gospel gets right is that the gospel is indeed indeed free. There isn't anything that a person must do to earn it. All they must do is believe. Salvation is by grace through faith. However, However, what the decisionistic gospel gets wrong is the cost of this faith. What it requires of you as you live it out Salvation is free, but the kind of faith that Jesus calls on his disciples to exercise, that's going to cost you everything in the end. See, what the decisionistic gospel gets wrong is not the quote-unquote price of salvation. Not exactly. They're right in saying that salvation is free, and it is given to those who exercise faith. What they're wrong about, more than anything else, is the definition of faith. The way they define faith, it's really no more than a kind of mental assent to the historical realities of the gospel matched with some type of request made to Jesus that he would apply these realities to you. As long as you believe that Jesus really actually did these things, like you believe historically that they took place, then these realities apply to you and you're safe. It's a close your eyes and cross your fingers really hard kind of faith. I compare it to the movies that you see about Santa Claus around Christmas time every year where there's this crisis of faith and if people don't start believing in Santa Claus soon, right, then he won't be able to deliver the presents of little boys and little girls of the world on Christmas morning. It's basically a kind of power. So long as we hope hard enough, as long as we cover our ears and close our eyes and shout, I can't hear you, whenever the world tells us that Jesus is not the Son of God, then God will save us. We practice saving faith. We believed hard enough. We believe it's true, and so we'll go to heaven. The problem, of course, is that Jesus' brother James says in James 2 that even the demons can practice this kind of faith. They realize that God exists. They know who Jesus is and what he did. I mean, they'll even cry out, have you come to destroy us before the time when they see him walking up in the Gospels. They have that kind of faith. But they're certainly not going to be saved, right? And this is because as much as they know all these things about God, they do not trust Him. They do not like Him. Knowing, listen, knowing who God is and believing it, they reject Him. You understand, it's not enough to know about God. That's not the faith that Jesus demands. Unbelievers can practice that kind of faith. No, the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about It's the kind of faith wherein a person turns away from their hard-hearted rejection of God, away from their trust in idols for their salvation and joy, and instead turn to God in complete and abject dependence and trust. This is how Paul can say that salvation is free, that it's entirely a faith, and Jesus at the same time tell his followers, if you don't give me everything, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. It's because those two ideas, they're compatible. The faith that Jesus demands, it's a very costly kind of faith. 
It's not merely a belief that Jesus died for sins, but a belief in the personal character of God Himself. It's what is termed in various places as repentance. A lot of times when we think of repentance, we think of a change in action, but in the New Testament, the word for repentance is actually metanoia, and it means literally a change of mind. It's not a change in action primarily, but a change of mind. In the New Testament, the one who repents turns away from their dependence and trust in idols. And instead, they turn to God in faith. They stop rejecting God and believing Him to be a mean or cruel or vindictive sort of God. They turn away from that. And they start trusting in Him instead. There's a change of mind. And of course, this certainly includes a turning away from self-righteousness to a dependence on the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's included in all of that. It includes a repentance unto dependence of God for salvation, though it's not exclusive to this kind of hope. I like the way author David H. Hegg describes it in his book, The Obedience Option. He says, quote, Faith is not merely some opinion or even a belief that something is true. It's more than that. It's an enduring confidence, a settled conviction, a radical assurance concerning Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel message that keeps the soul from shrinking back, from giving up and giving in. This is key. He says, it's an assurance concerning Christ and His gospel that keeps the soul from shrinking back and giving up and giving in. The idea is that it affects how we live because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, right? I believe that God loves me, that He desires my good and not my harm. How does that then not work itself out into every other aspect of my life, right? I mean, just how how can I say that I believe that Jesus loved me enough to die for my sins and then not obey Him? You understand obedience isn't just about doing something that makes God happy so He doesn't punish us or something like that. It's an expression of trust in His person and character. In fact, the Scripture says that if our obedience is not driven by this kind of trust, then it isn't obedience. It's still sin. So you see, my faith in the finished work of Christ, it by necessity transforms my entire life. And it transforms my entire life to the degree that if a person's life is not transformed by the gospel, then it's completely legitimate for them to question whether or not they are indeed saved. And that's not because they have earned their salvation through obedience or something like that. Rather, it's because the absence of obedience points to an absence of real, actual, saving faith. In the words of David Hegg, once again, he says, Faith is an assurance, a conviction, a settled confidence. It is more than mere agreement with historical facts or doctrines. It is more than acceptance of some denominational distinctives or appreciation of the role of the church in society. It is the settled, it is the settled assurance that God is right in the way He has described in the Bible, combined with a radical determination that all He has for those who seek Him is worth everything my life has to give Him. Saving faith isn't just something that an individual practices once when they believe, never to be dealt with again, nor is it a belief that is expressed only in the sphere of salvation as we trust in the sacrifice and imputed righteousness of Christ. No, it is an active principle in the life of the Christian, which progressively transforms the believer more and more into the image of Christ as they gradually learn to exercise their faith by trusting and obeying Him more and more. This is why James 
can say in James 2 that, that faith without works is dead. Right? Faith inevitably produces works. That's James' point. In fact, the connection between faith and works is so intertwined that the absence of the latter indicates the non-existence of the former. And without the first, you cannot produce the second. It doesn't matter what you say about Jesus. If your faith doesn't, at some level, progressively transform your life to where you worship God more and more, become more and more conformed into the image of Christ, I don't care what you say you believe about Jesus. You don't trust Him. You don't believe in the way that the Scripture requires. I mean, you may believe about Jesus, but you don't trust Him. And that is why Jesus will say to those who cry out, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. The decisionistic gospel misses this point. It treats faith as a one-point-in-time isolated event. In fact, when you really stop to think about it, in many instances, those who preach this gospel are really no different than the Grace Plus Works crowd. I mean, you think about it. The way they talk about the sinner's prayer or the altar call, it's really almost no different than the Christian church's position on baptism that we talked about last week. The prayer becomes the means through which God distributes His grace. Essentially, it's a work. And I say that because according to those who preach this gospel, it doesn't matter what happens in your life after that, you're saved. The idea is that really, apart from any active principle of faith in your life, you're saved because you uttered the right words. It really treats the prayer as the conduit of grace rather rather than as an expression of faith. That's a very key distinction. Distinction. Salvation doesn't work that way. A person is not saved as a result of their prayer for forgiveness. The prayer is not a work that earns us access to God's grace. Rather, a sinner's prayer for forgiveness is an expression of their saving faith. A faith that has already formed an active principle at work in their life and which will continue to work itself out in their life if it's saving faith until the day they die. And so the question, one final time, as it has been throughout this series, is, in what gospel have you believed? The Grace Plus Works Gospel says that you have to do something to earn your salvation. Even if that means just accessing grace through your efforts, the idea is that you still contribute to it. The Gospel we have seen, this Gospel we have seen, is wrong because salvation is only by grace through faith. It's completely free. And yet that doesn't mean it won't cost you. No, it won't cost you anything to purchase this salvation. Again, it's completely free. And yet the faith that leads a person to ask for this grace, to turn to Christ and depend on Him entirely for their salvation, this is a life-transforming faith that comes with a very steep price. Denial of sin, denial of self in the pursuit of Christ, war against the flesh as you learn to walk by faith, rejection in the name of Christ, this is the cost of faith. Now there's no doubt that the reward that we receive in Christ is more than worth it. I mean, the one who sells everything he has to purchase the field with a treasure in it, or the one who sells all that he owns to acquire the pearl of great price, he does it because of the exceeding value of the treasure or of the pearl. There is far more to be gained in selling his possessions than he could ever have in keeping them. 
So again, there's, there's, it's definitely worth it. As Jesus said, the one who loses his life for his sake will find it. The reward is more than worth it. But all the same, there is a cost. Have you paid that price? Have you determined to surrender everything to follow Jesus? Because that's the kind of faith that He demands. Or have you merely asked for forgiveness apart from saving faith? Examine yourself. I know it feels like we end up back on this subject every few months, but understand, this false gospel is very prevalent where we live. In fact, I'd have to say it's probably the major reason why I wanted to come here to southwest Missouri to be a pastor. I've been there. I've believed in that gospel. And I know how prevalent and how deceptive it is. It's everywhere. It's all around us. So really examine yourself. Make certain that you aren't deceived. Have you believed? Ask God to help you see, to search you and make the truth known to you. And if in the end you know you haven't believed, and you're weighing the cost this morning as you consider the impact of the faith that Jesus demands. I would encourage you to consider what the Gospel proclaims once again. It says that God, in His rich love for us, even while we were enemies, sent His Son to die for our sins. And Jesus, God the Son, He eagerly surrendered His life for our forgiveness. What greater love is there than this? Right? That God would lay down his life for his friends. Do you understand, if God would do that for you, then what good thing is he ever going to withhold from you? The answer is nothing, absolutely nothing. If this is the case, all his love is directed at you. He can only desire your good. Even when he calls you to obedience, it can only be for your good in the end. So if you're weighing that cost this morning, don't delay, don't wait. Count the cost, sure. But definitely repent. Definitely believe. Give it all to Jesus in faith because even the repentance that He demands, even the obedience that comes as a result of this faith, even this is gospel, even this is good news. Let's pray.